Well, hey there. This is Chris Lay, the podcast operations manager for Lee Enterprises. And for this latest season of Crime Beat Chronicles that you're listening to, we wanted to highlight a series from the Roanoke Times titled Septic that was first reported and produced in 2018 by journalists Jacob Demet and Robbie Korth. A five-year-old child went missing in Dublin, Virginia, the spring of 2015. When his body was discovered days later in the family's septic tank, the mother was put on trial both by the court system as well as social media, where misinformation, accusations, and vengeance-fueled comments spread unchecked. It's a tragic story, to be sure, but reporters Demet and Korth went to tremendous lengths to capture and present a well-rounded and ultimately humane narrative that explores the way a community failed one of their own while also touching on broader implications like the effects of Facebook, the stigma of drug addiction in rural America, and the distortion of facts. This is the sixth of what will ultimately be seven episodes releasing every week. So firstly, head back to the start of the series if it's your first time here. And secondly, please make sure that you're subscribed to the show wherever you get your podcasts to make sure that you get the latest installments as they premiere. And once you're subscribed, you can explore our archives for other true crime stories as told by the journalists who originally reported them. We'll make sure to include links to relevant articles from Roanoke.com in the show notes, so make sure you check those out for even more context and reporting on the story. And finally, if you appreciate what we're doing with this program, we encourage you to invest in local journalism and support the Roanoke Times or whichever newspaper it is that serves your community. It's the work of local reporters that make shows like this and so many others that you likely enjoy possible. So thanks for listening. And here is the sixth episode, 16,776 hours, which was first produced in 2018 by Roanoke Times journalist Jacob Demet and Robbie Korth. Michael Durant is from Tewksbury Township, New Jersey, a rural upper-middle-class community about 50 miles west of New York City. His family was playing one of those idyllic games of backyard wiffle ball in the summer of 2014, a game that took a dark turn. Michael was in the field when a batter hit a line drive to the outfield. That's where Michael's four-year-old relative, Abby, was playing. That's also where the family's septic tank was located. No one is quite sure how or when the lid to the tank became broken, but the property owner said he thinks it was probably damaged by a lawnmower driving over the tank opening. No matter how it happened, Michael had no idea there was anything dangerous out there when the child went chasing after the ball. We'll let Michael tell the story from here. But anyway, the ball ended up over by the septic tank, and, you know, she ran over there to go get it. You know, not thinking what this thing is. You know, she's, she's a little girl, and they don't really put all that together. She just stepped on the corner of it, really, what, what our theory was, because it was a little um, askew, so to speak. And when she stepped on it, she sunk right down. It was just gone. Like, she was, it was, you know, maybe a second. I mean, you're talking about something. Um, it just, you step on it, it just turns, and you drop. So it was instantaneous. It's not like she could grab onto anything on the side. I mean, she also still had the ball in her hand. Thing she didn't really, she couldn't grab onto anything. She just, she went right down. What was your, what was going through your mind when you saw her drop into the ground like that? Oh my God, I'm gonna have to jump into a septic tank head first. I mean, I started yelling because I didn't think I could, uh, you know, at that distance, I didn't know from where I was at if I'd be able to get her. So I just assumed I was going into the septic tank and that I was hoping one of the other adults was gonna pull me out. So I sprinted over there as fast as I could. 
um, you know, threw the lid across the side and almost kind of threw myself into this this tank mm-hmm. to pull her out because even from where the top of the water is, it's a couple feet in there. And uh, so, you know, I was like my stomach or my torso and above was 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 in the tank itself just so I could get a hold of her. And, um, you know, it's not like I could grab her arm or her hand or anything like that. I actually grabbed um, her upper shoulder. She was still fighting to stay up. But there's something in the tank that pulls you down a little bit. I, I don't know if that's just the call it mud at the bottom. You know, so she was she was going under and, and trying to keep herself up as much as she could. But it was it was very close on that one. What was she doing? And was she uh, calm or was she... she no, she was frantic. She was kicking, screaming. Well, not screaming, but because um, there was water getting into her lungs at that point. But she was, you know, just frantic, flailing around like you'd expect anyone else in that situation to be. Yeah. Sounds horrific. It sounds. Um, yeah, but uh, put this way: when I got bought my first house, um, we made sure it had city. So, mm-hmm. you know, you look at you look down into a septic tank and you see a small child drowning and fighting for their life. It's there's no way to forget that. From the Roanoke Times Newsroom, this is Septic. I'm Jacob Demet, reporting with Robbie Korth. The reason this case caught our attention, when Abby from New Jersey fell into the tank, Michael said he watched the lid swing around and reseal itself, similar to what may have happened when Noah fell into his septic tank. Had Michael not been there to witness the whole thing, it's easy to imagine a similar end to these stories. And I bet people would have also said it's impossible that Abby's lid would reseal itself with the child inside, just like they say for Noah. Abby was fine except for a couple of bruises. The septic tank was sealed and a child safety device was installed. We talked to Michael's father, who owns the property. He said he had no idea the danger the septic tank posed. It's just one of those things that sits on your property and you don't really think about. He has since tried to spread the word to get more people to check their own tanks. He said it could happen to anybody, and he's right. Every year, all around the world, people fall into septic tanks. It's way more common than you would imagine, and Abby is one of the lucky ones. At least one toddler will drown in a septic tank pretty much every year. It happens so often, there are now safety devices literally called kid catchers. We couldn't find anybody that tracks hard statistics on septic tank drownings, but a search of news reports revealed at least 16 instances in the U.S. over the past 10 years. At least three kids under the age of eight fell into septic tanks in 2016, with only one surviving. At least three children in 2015, five in 2014. Most of the news stories include accounts from distraught parents who talk about how they only looked away for a moment and then their child was gone. Some of the searches went on for days. Already in 2018, there's been at least one instance of a child drowning to death in a septic tank. Three-year-old Ryder Ryaski of New Mexico died in January. We thought it was important to add this context before you hear how Ashley and Paul's story ends. One of the things I struggled with while reporting was just how uniquely tragic this all felt. There were a lot of angles to examine, but at the end of the day, it all boiled down to a five-year-old child who drowned alone in cold, raw sewage. It just seemed hard to imagine anything could be worse than that. It felt like Pulaski had experienced some sort of unparalleled tragedy. But stories like Noah's in Pulaski and Abby's in New Jersey show us that that's not the case. During our reporting, we had to figure out how to wrap our heads around the fact that what happened to Noah not only wasn't unique, it's not even that unusual. What is unusual is how Noah's death was treated by investigators and the general public. One of the most similar tragedies to Noah's happened in Kalispell, Montana, more than a decade ago. 
Mark Rogers was visiting a friend on January 24, 2007. When it was time to leave, he loaded his three-year-old son Loic into the car, then went back inside to retrieve the boy's siblings. When he went back outside, Loic was gone. Loic's body wasn't discovered for three days, during which a massive search ensued. He was eventually found inside the neighbor's septic tank. Investigators took a hard look at that case, treating it as a criminal matter from the beginning. Mark Rogers, Loic's dad, came under harsh scrutiny. Mark's former father-in-law talked to local reporters at the time, questioning the dad's version of events. He said that he suspected the child was left alone outside for far longer than Mark had let on, according to the Missoulian newspaper. But Rogers wasn't ever charged. Instead, 10 months after the boy's death, Tommy Cates, the owner of the septic tank, was charged with negligent endangerment. Cates pleaded no contest and was fined $500. A lot of the cases we discovered involved unattended children. A mother in Alton, Texas, left her one-year-old son outside alone in April 2016 while she went indoors to tend to her other 20-month-old child. The boy was later found dead in the family's septic tank. Within six months, the Texas Department of Family Protective Services ruled the death an accident. There were no charges. That's one of the main differences between many of these cases and Noah's. Of the instances we looked into, investigators usually called the event a tragic accident. The phrase, no foul play, was tossed around a lot. We haven't been able to find a single other case in which the parents were charged criminally related to the child's death. A three-year-old Massachusetts boy named Jason drowned in a tank in 2006. His parents sued several groups they believed were responsible, including a home inspector. Six years after Jason's death, a judge ruled that septic tank lid was defective. The family was awarded a $21 million verdict. There was one case in Texas where a child died in a tank while playing hide-and-go-seek in 2012. The parents, David and Sabrina Kimbley, weren't charged related to the death. Instead, they were each charged with 13 counts of child endangerment. Like the Noah Thomas case, prosecutors were focused on the messy condition of the child's home, including roaches in the pantry. The parents were sentenced to four years in jail. But none of this context surrounding septic tank drownings mattered as bailiffs unlocked the doors to the Pulaski County Courthouse on February 12, 2016, the last day of Ashley's trial. TV news crews set up outside early that morning. Live trucks idled in front of the courthouse. A cameraman sat by the front door to catch shots of the lawyers walking inside. The courtroom was more full than usual. Some of the witnesses stuck around after their testimony to watch. Some of the people in the gallery were just members of the community. Ashley's sister Mandy was in the audience, made conspicuous by the clear family resemblance. Proceedings began at 9 a.m. each day and sometimes extended into the evenings. Closing arguments finished at 3 p.m. that Friday, and Judge Bradley Finch had a decision by 5. Ashley had cried through much of the trial, but stared ahead blankly that day. I have carefully considered everything that has been presented here today. The judge spoke for 20 minutes, highlighting how Ashley told an elaborate lie to hide the way she left her kids home alone. He said the conditions of the mobile home were, quote, deplorable, filthy, extremely cluttered. It had cigarettes, marijuana, and medicine bottles strewn about. He pointed out that Noah's sister, Abby, was sick at the time, and that Noah was an active boy who enjoyed playing outside and climbing on things. He talked about how Ashley went to sleep after returning home. When she woke up to find her child missing, Finch noted she didn't immediately begin searching with diligence. Instead, she fed and changed Abby's diaper first. Everyone in the courtroom could tell things were not headed in Ashley's favor, as Finch talked about the timing for when Ashley took Suboxone the day Noah went missing. Remember, Ashley said she took it after she woke up to find her child missing, but before police arrived. That's important, because sleepiness is one of the side effects of the drug, so it could explain why she fell asleep. The court 
finds that her testimony in that regard uh, was self-serving testimony uh, designed to help conceal her guilt and that it was not truthful uh, regarding the timing of the taking of her suboxone. Uh, the court rejects that portion of her testimony as to the timing of the taking of her suboxone on that day. He went on to describe the tank in the backyard where Noah liked to go outside and play by himself. The defendant told the police that looking back at things she should have done but didn't, the lid to the septic tank should have been bolted on. But she says she didn't know that at the time. I find from the evidence that she was aware of the danger posed to Noah by the septic tank. Finch finished his summary by reviewing case law. You'll hear him mention one case, Barrett, that set a legal precedent for parents' responsibilities with their children. Likewise, in the present case, the defendant not only knew uh, that the backyard and the area around the septic tank uh, was a very popular play area for Noah, she had literally seen Noah standing on the uh, lightweight plastic lid to the septic tank just a month or two before this tragedy occurred. Uh, she had been alarmed by that. She had scolded Noah for that. And she had made Noah promise to never do that again. So likewise, as the defendant in Barrett, the defendant in this case was forewarned about the danger that that septic tank posed to her five-year-old son, her active five-year-old son. As the court stated in Barrett, uh, this was a disaster just waiting to happen, a disaster that any reasonable person would consider likely to result in injury to Patricia herself or to Joshua or both. And likewise, in the present case, the court finds that this was a disaster waiting to happen and a disaster that any reasonable person would consider likely to result in injury to Noah or worse in his death. When the court considers all of the evidence that has been admitted, as well as the arguments of counsel, as well as the applicable law, the court finds the defendant guilty of all charges. To break that down for you, Ashley was found guilty of three felony counts of child abuse and neglect. Two of the charges were for the time the kids were left home alone while Ashley drove Paul to work, one for each child. The third charge was child abuse and neglect, resulting in injury, which is a more serious charge. That's for the time Ashley slept and Noah fell into the tank. Maybe it's hindsight bias, but Kelsey, Ashley's lawyer, told us they weren't terribly surprised to hear guilty after the way everything played out during the trial. We both started to feel like things were not going well once the Commonwealth introduced pictures of the inside of the home. Um, you know, the way they were described by the prosecution and the way they were described by the court, it was, it was obvious that the court was just very disgusted with what it was seeing. Um, and I think the trial court really went above and beyond to, to show how, how he did not approve. So I think we, we kind of knew then, obviously it wasn't a great sign when we started putting on evidence about the septic tank that, you know, everybody kind of put their pen down. Nobody actually cared about 
the state of the septic tank and whose responsibility it was to make sure it was safe, because that wasn't the interesting part of it. You know, those regulations of how you're supposed to maintain a septic tank were not interesting to people. So even at that point, I think the judge put his pen down. Um, so by the end of it, we, we, we kind of knew where things were heading. Mm-hmm. Is there anything you can say about um, kind of what Ashley was saying then and and I guess after the verdict came out as well? I think that just generally we were both so disappointed in the justice system because I really feel like when she was found guilty, um, it had failed her. Like, that was not supposed to happen. They did not prove their case, and the law was on our side. She should not have been found guilty. And this entire time, I've been trying to tell her to have faith in the system. You know, the law's on our side. We have these great arguments. I think we're right about our arguments. And then to have her be found guilty and to have, you know, that that sort of big failure, I think, was just really hard for both of us to to process. I think during your closing argument, you kind of said this this is a case about a mother who took a nap. Fleener and Justin have said it's it's much more than that. Why is this not more than just a mother taking a nap, do you think? So I think that the prosecution sort of tried to rely on things that looked very bad throughout trials. So I know you mentioned they had said, you know, the, the house was so dangerous, and that's what they argued at trial. There were so many dangerous, just like filthy conditions in the home. Um, but when you look at what they actually proved at trial in terms of danger, they really didn't show any danger in the home. They showed a house that looked bad. They showed a trailer that looked bad. Um, and when you're considering the audience of maybe people who have never stepped foot in a trailer and people who are already just going to judge her for living in a trailer, Mm -hmm. um, you know, you kind of have to consider just how that looks. So I don't really think that they ever got past the point of this is just a mother who took a nap. They presented a lot of evidence that sounded very bad, you know, her history of drug use and the Suboxone and all of that, but they they never actually proved that it was anything more. Um, And I think that's what the Court of Appeals looked at, too. You know, what is the actual proof that the prosecution gave at trial? And they didn't see any. There was some talk about foreseeability and um, kind of the need to to have uh, like a known danger. Is that is that kind of what the standard is? Right. So it has to be a willful act or omission. So willful, the courts have defined that as you have to be aware that the injury is likely to result when you either take an action or you omit from something. Um, so basically for the Commonwealth to have proved that class four felony, they needed to prove that Ashley was aware of the danger of the septic tank and she knew that that sort of injury was likely to result when she took a nap. Um, and the way the Court of Appeals inter- interpreted the evidence was, okay, if we're going to say that that was enough, what they proved at trial, then we would be placing this like unbelievably high burden on parents to seek out every potential hazard and make every situation safe for their children, which 
I mean, ideally, you want your children to live in a safe environment, but that's just impossible, right? Like, you can't, you can't close off the road in front of your home so there's no traffic in front of your home. Like, you're not going to be able to make every situation safe for a child. So that's why the statute requires you to be aware of the danger, of the specific danger, in order for you to be, you know, guilty under that. Trials are split into two sections. First, in the part you just heard, the defendant receives a verdict, guilty or not guilty. If they're found guilty, like Ashley was, then they move on to a sentencing hearing where they find out what the punishment will be. Ashley's sentencing hearing didn't happen for five more months. There was a lot of talk about sentencing guidelines back then. In Virginia, courts use a formula that takes into account everything from a person's criminal history to factors involved in their most recent crime in order to give judges a range of sentences that would be appropriate. Judges aren't bound by the guidelines, but they tend to stick pretty close to them. Judge Bradley Finch ultimately sentenced the mother to serve one year and 11 months in jail. After that, she was sentenced to another 15 years of supervised probation. By the time Ashley received the sentence in July 2016, she had already served about 15 months awaiting trial. She got credit for that time. Paul Thomas, Noah's father, faced less serious charges because his neglect didn't result in injury to the children. He was only charged for the time the parents left the kids home alone when Ashley took him to work. Less than a month after Ashley received her verdict, Paul changed his plea to guilty. His sentencing guidelines called for probation but no incarceration. Fleener asked for more. Paul's lawyer, Lindsay Honeycutt, said enough is enough. And the sentencing guidelines say that for a similarly situated defendant, uh, the recommendation is probation only. And without all of the attention on this case, uh, I would submit to the court that that's usually what would happen from locality to locality. And so I would urge the court to sentence Mr. Thomas uh, to time served. That would give the Commonwealth what they're asking for. They're asking for more than what the guidelines are, are, are calling for. And he's already served more than what the guidelines are calling for. Uh, Mr. Thomas described this entire situation, this entire experience as an absolute nightmare. Uh, he's been living in a nightmare for a year, and he's got one child he will never, ever see again. Um, that's the ultimate punishment, and the Commonwealth has already got what they asked for. So I would ask the court uh, to release Mr. Thomas on time served and let him be released today. This, is, this has gone on uh, for quite some time, and... Mr. Thomas would respectfully request that, that this be enough. Let this end. Let him go home. Let him try to rebuild his life somewhat the best he can. And, um, and let him try to move forward. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Before delivering verdicts, judges give defendants a chance to speak if they want. It probably doesn't mean much, but a lot of people like to get something on the record. Paul was no different. I would just like to say that I accept responsibility for what I did. I know what I did was wrong. And I've paid, a, I've paid a huge price for what I've done, for the crime I committed. I feel I've paid the price for what I did. Finch deviated above the sentencing guidelines, ordering Paul to serve one year and three months in jail for leaving his kids home alone in a dirty house for somewhere between 25 and 45 minutes. With credit for time served, Paul was released on May 3rd, 2016. Ashley was released seven months later. That's usually where these stories end. The defendants serve their time, are released, and get a chance to move on. But Paul and Ashley weren't ready for that. Ashley appealed part of her verdict. She didn't argue against the two lesser counts. 
What she does dispute is the more serious count of child abuse and neglect leading to Noah's death. The Virginia Court of Appeals agreed to hear that case in February of 2017, after she was already released, which is unusual. Ashley had little to gain except clearing her name. The appeal elaborated on a theme Bolger explored during White's trial, that there was just not enough evidence that Noah's death, while terrible, resulted from abuse or neglect. To be honest, we were almost finished with this show by the time the appeals court ruled on the case. Verdicts are so rarely reversed, we weren't expecting much. We were wrong. On September 19, 2017, a three-judge panel of the Virginia Court of Appeals overturned Ashley's conviction for her most serious charge by a two-to-one vote. That really means, at least for now, Ashley is not criminally responsible for Noah's death. But remember, she is still a convicted felon for the other accounts. Here's an excerpt from Judge William Petty's opinion. The tragic death of a young child is a hard case. When the child's body is found in a septic tank after four days of searching, the case is even harder. But it would not benefit the general good of the community to expand the law's requirement of willful conduct to include a parent's failure to protect the child from an undiscovered or unknown danger. Septic tanks are common in many areas of this commonwealth. As tragic as the facts of this case are, to affirm the conviction would be to hold that the law requires a parent to search out potential dangers and continuously supervise his or her child. A parent could be subject to a felony conviction if he or she failed to recognize the danger posed by an unsecured tank cover, the unlatched gate, the rotted board, the unfenced pond, or any other hazard that, in hindsight, could have been corrected. Here, the evidence was insufficient to show White left her son unsupervised with, quote, knowledge and consciousness that injury would result. The Virginia Attorney General's office appealed that reversal, asking for the case to be heard by more appellate judges. They declined, handing Ashley another win. But it didn't end there. In November, the Attorney General's office asked the Virginia Supreme Court to review the case. The state's highest court hasn't said yet whether or not it will take up the issue and schedule oral arguments, but we'll update the show when that happens. Paul also hasn't given up since he was released from jail. He pleaded guilty, so he can't appeal the verdict, but his case lives on in civil court. On March 21, 2017, Paul filed a lawsuit on behalf of the Noah Thomas estate against Gary Meadows, his former landlord, and Tuftite, the maker of the septic tank lid. The lawsuit seeks $5.3 million for wrongful death. The suit alleges that Noah stood on the lid, it rotated or swung open, causing the boy to fall inside. It claims the lid then, quote, continued to rotate and return to its previous position, leaving no outward indication of Noah's whereabouts. It claims the lid was defective and inherently dangerous. The suit also claims Gary Meadows is believed to be the last person to remove the septic tank lid, and therefore had the duty of safely replacing it. Meadows' attorney argued that the suit should be dismissed because the theory of what happened to the lid is, quote, illogical and preposterous. Even if the theory is presumed correct, the lawyer argued, Meadows would only be guilty of simple negligence, which does not justify awarding punitive damages. Paul's attorney dropped the suit against Tuftite, but is still pursuing claims against the landlord. One of the reasons this case has drawn us in so much is that there just isn't an easy answer. If trained lawyers and some of the most experienced legal minds in the state can't agree on whether Ashley should go to jail for Noah's death, how can we? On one hand, I see a mother who made absolutely horrible decisions. Her children were living in rough conditions, and because of her lack of oversight, a cute five-year-old boy is dead. But I also see a woman who has been plagued by tragedy since she was a high schooler. Ashley has her demons, but she was fighting back and by all accounts dedicated to overcoming her addiction. She passed drug tests when Noah died, so I'm not even sure how relevant all that is to the case at hand. Her house was also messy, but again, 
Noah died outside, not inside the home. There are a lot of unanswered questions here that we're just going to have to live with. We have to look at the evidence. What's left is a mother who took a nap. While she slept, her child wandered out of the home, stepped on a septic tank lid, fell in, and drowned. Does that mother deserve almost two years in jail? Mike Fleener says he still believes she deserved a lot more time than that. We offered lawyers from both sides the chance to lay out the arguments one last time. We ended up sitting in Fleener's office for over an hour. Assistant Commonwealth Attorney Justin Griffith also weighed in. I was not happy with it. No, I mean, it was her negligence and... Uh, That's Fleener, her, uh, just so you can differentiate the voices. Her conduct, I think, that, that played a great role in Noah's death. It may not have been deliberate or premeditated, or, but, but it certainly was the cause of her death. And to me, a year and four months or a year and 11 months, I think she received, was was insufficient. At the sentencing hearing, I asked the judge to, to give her 10 years. Um, one year and 11 months may sound like a, an unusual sentence. You know, why not just make it two? <laughs> but uh, uh, one year and 11 months, I believe, was the within the guideline range. It was the top number on the guideline range. So... So the court decided to stay within the guidelines and go to the maximum end. But um, but no, I didn't think one year and 11 months was sufficient, and I said it at the, at the time. So she, she served her time. She was out. But she appeals the verdict after she's released. Is that typical? Did that surprise you guys? So she was convicted of, of two Class six felonies for leaving the infant and, and Noah Home Alone, when she took Paul to work, um, she did not appeal those. Yeah, yeah. Um, she appealed the Class 4 resulting in death. Um, you know, on one hand, most parents would never leave their child alone, but you would like to think every parent that is accused of causing the death of their child would fight that to the fullest extent. So, um, contrary to her actions on how she treated her child, she seemed to want to wanna fight that causing the death of her child to the fullest extent. So it didn't necessarily surprise me, no. So you think it, it was more about clearing her name than any kind of punishment? or? Absolutely, that's what I, I believe. It's hard, to, it's hard to speculate as to why she would want to appeal. Obviously, if she's already served the sentence, she can't get any more than that. So if she's already served the sentence, one might think, well, what point is it to appeal? But nonetheless, she... Uh, she appealed it, and, and her attorney um, appealed it and um, was able to get a, um, a reversal in the Court of Appeals. Were you surprised when you, when you read the opinion? Oh, yeah, I was very surprised. What is at stake as we go to the Supreme Court? Is there um, precedence about the roles of parents? Is there um, justice in this case? What do you think is at stake as we go to the Supreme Court? Well, as far as precedence goes, you know, I think the the, the state of uh, abuse and neglect uh, charges and and offenses in Virginia uh, will continue to be uh, difficult to to ascertain any sort of you know theoretical line of of reasoning. There's really not one. There's not one now. And this case, with its uh, result and, and uh, being overturned, is certainly just going to add to the confusion for practitioners who, who uh, 
you know, are, are forced to, to make decisions on charging and, and decisions on conduct. Um, but I think this case is a lot more than just a mother taking a nap. You know, that's how it was portrayed in trial, and that's kind of how it's been portrayed in the Court of Appeals. And it's certainly a lot more than that. Um, um, but they're all, all these cases are necessarily factually based. They're all, they all turn on their facts, and no cases are exactly the same. So. The judges, um, the opinion, they said something like, it's, it kind of compared it to a parent not knowing that the latch on a gate is broken, that, that parents could be charged. Do you remember that line we are talking about? And what's different mm-hmm. about this case is she knew she did know. that latch was broken. Yeah. She told us, yeah, and, that front door knob and, never and, worked. And let's not let's not let's not pretend she didn't know he could open it. She also then takes the next step and says, "Well, he could open the door. He would open the door. He did like to go outside." So that that's one thing that um, I think distinguishes this case from what was cited in the court of appeals about holding a, a parent accountable, you know, for a latch being broke. Well, a parent should be held accountable if that latch is holding their child back from a danger. And that parent knows that latch isn't yeah. working. The parent should be held accountable. When when I when I was preparing to argue this case, I spent a considerable amount of time reading every single felony abuse and neglect case out of Virginia that I could find, and there are many of them. And it appeared to me that one of the key factors that the courts were considering in determining guilt was the whole issue of notice. You know, and, and and that makes a lot of sense. And in, in the civil law, notices is, is is very important. You know, if you have notice of something, if you have knowledge of something, then clearly you're going to be judged at a different standard than if you don't know about something. We I think we could all agree about that. But for some reason, the Court of Appeals and the Virginia Supreme Court never used the term notice. Likewise, and sort of along that same vein, is this whole theory of foreseeability. They will not use the term foreseeability. The majority of these cases, in my opinion, could be, could be much more clearly uh, established if they would just talk about notice and foreseeability. Because when you analyze them, that's what most of them turn on. And it also is the case with the... Uh, with the Ashley White and Paul Thomas case. In my mind, it turns on, turns on notice and foreseeability. She had noticed that that dangerous condition existed outside. She had noticed that her son liked to go out and play in that area, that he could easily get out of the trailer. And it was also then foreseeable that he could become injured by that dangerous condition. So that's kind of the way we analyzed it. And I think that's kind of the way the courts analyze it. They just don't put it in those terms. Could the Supreme Court take a hard stance on this and clean up this issue that you said is kind of difficult to? I think they, I think they could certainly help with the jurisprudence in this state by by looking at these cases in terms of notice and foreseeability. I think it would would give practitioners a lot better uh, 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 better tools in, in evaluating evaluating them. So there's all the stuff going on in the courtroom, and then there's a whole lot of stuff going on outside the courtroom with the perceptions of Ashley, the um, the anger. I mean, I think the county's reaction was quite clear during the, 
the motion for the change of venue. You know, you saw the comments. Um, yeah. Some of them were over the top. They were inappropriate things to say. But on the other hand, I, I wouldn't want to live or work in a community that would learn what Paul and Ashley intentionally chose to do and leave those kids in that environment and not have that viral reaction. I want people to think you should never leave a five-year-old and an infant alone, period, especially in an environment like that. Um, I, I just would not condone the public thinking, well, why in the world are they being prosecuted? They simply just drove a man to work. She didn't know that their, their children were going to get up and, and walk around that home. So some of the reactions were unprofessional, inappropriate ways to talk to someone. But on the other hand, you wanted to see people not support children being treated that way. And so, so that you had to find a balance on that. Do you think that this case would have shaken out the same way if, um, if Ashley didn't have a history of drug abuse and had been, um, higher income level, um, do you think it would have? Do you think people would have perceived her the same way they did, and there would have been the same backlash of, of hatred? If a child was found deceased in a septic tank in Heron's Landing, I, I do think the reaction um, would have been the same. Do you agree with that, Mike? Um, I think I think that's true. I, I believe that the the number of people that would have would have been upset. Well, obviously, everyone was upset at the death of a child, naturally. But I think that um, that some of the over-the-top comments uh, about her, you know, <laughs> were were at least somewhat in, inspired by. Uh, yeah, I mean, some of them were. You know, you'd hear, you know, white trash and things like words that, in and of themselves, showed perhaps a bias. Um, that may have been based on it, but I, I agree generally with Mr. Griffith that that um, the death of a five-year-old in a septic tank under those kinds of conditions. Now you might you might wonder, well, would you know would a person of means, uh, um, you know, maybe she wasn't financially able to make sure the screws were in the lid. Or she wasn't financially able to to do these different things, you know. The law, at least the criminal law, doesn't make a distinction there, and and we can't, you know, overlook the fact that that dangerous condition existed. And also, but for her drug use, she might not have fallen asleep. This never would have happened. Potentially, never would have happened, but for the drug use. If the, if the child was left alone in an environment that wasn't so dangerous, the reaction shouldn't be the same. There should be disappointment, but there there shouldn't be a complete and utter outrage as we had. So it's it's difficult to to parse those from what happened because we believe it was such a driving factor as to what happened. Mm -hmm. And the and the substance, the drug that she took, Suboxone. Is specifically for drug addicts to wean themselves from mm -hmm. from opiate addiction, um, and all that came out at trial. It, it wasn't like she took a, you know, a prescribed uh, medicine, you know, to help her with stress or something. But it was it was a it was a drug used to 
for drug addicts, I guess, if you will. But I think that there's no doubt that there was considerable, um, you know, uh, rage out in the public, if for no other reason but the the fact that the judge himself, after several days of interviewing potential witnesses, concluded that she could not get a fair trial in Pulaski County and move the venue. I mean, that's we haven't said that, but um, that's really the reason for for these issues coming up. And I have to say that um, I I can't disagree that the judge was right about that. I believe based upon the numerous uh, comments that showed not only a, a pre-existing bias with some of the potential jurors, but also, you know, just some some incorrect information going into it. Do you, is it still, do you still see an impact on the community? For me as a prosecutor, we oftentimes read statements, uh, statement of facts, narratives about what, what happened. And you just say, wow, you know, what if this would have happened? Or what if this would have happened? Well, I've seen what can happen with this case. Um, so I, I definitely have a, a heightened sense of what a possible outcome could be, you know, now as a prosecutor. Um, so the effect of this case is definitely carried forward with me on, on in, in my job because that's the worst possible outcome I've seen I've dealt with I've prosecuted and if there's something you can do on the front end you know to help prevent some type of situation leading down the road to that you know you want to do that so I absolutely think it, it's had an impact do you still have questions so the the um, there's kind of a, a, a dark spot where we have only Ashley's testimony. Do you feel satisfied that you know what happened to Noah? I think I know what happened to him. The one thing that I think is out in the community and has given the the public a belief that she did deliberately kill Noah is the fact that the lid was on the septic tank. I mean, I think that's, that's the big question mark right there. And, and, um, you know, how could a little boy get down in a septic tank and pull the lid on top of himself and close it back perfectly? Um, it seems, you know, just highly unlikely and just, utterly unreasonable that that could ever happen. Now, once saying that, it has happened. <laughs> there are actually documented cases of a child stepping on the, the edge of a septic tank, going straight in and the lid spinning around and going exactly back into place. That has happened. There have been eyewitnesses that have seen that. And it's not just one case. However, I'd have to say, you know, I don't know what the percentages are of that happening, but I'm sure it's way less than 1%. It's just, just by our own human experience, we know that that's probably unlikely to happen. Um, the lid in this case was very much like the plastic lid on any ordinary trash can that you would take to the road, you know, to be picked up. I think the lid weighed... A couple of pounds at the most. It was a thin plastic lid. The problem with this lid was that it it had uh, 
a place for 12 screws to hold it into place. And there was only one screw. And that screw was not even screwed in. It was just kind of laying there. So there was absolutely nothing holding this in place. There was nothing holding this two pound uh, lid on top of it. So a child absolutely could have lifted it up. A child, you know, because there was nothing keeping him from doing it. And the weight in and of itself was not, uh, would not have been difficult for him. It, wouldn't, it weighed the same as maybe a toy. Um, so then the question is, how, how did the lid get back in place with his body in there? And um, I think, you know, we could probably only speculate about that. And there's different theories about that, about how that could have happened. But those are the facts. He was in there with the lid on top of it. I don't disagree with Fleener here. It really is unlikely that Noah fell into that septic tank and the lid swung back around by itself, came to rest on top of the opening, hiding the fact that the child was in there. But I think unlikely scenarios are pretty much all we have here. One theory I've heard is that Ashley didn't put Noah in the tank, but she found him in there almost immediately because the lid was off when she went outside. Afraid she would get in trouble, some people think she just put the lid back on before she called 911 and then allowed the community to spend four days searching for her child, even though she knew where he was. But while I agree it's unlikely the lid closed by itself, I think it's also unlikely that if Ashley did look into the tank, she would have seen Noah. Remember, two police officers did look into the tank that day and neither saw a thing. One even stuck a metal rod in there and stirred the liquid around. And if Ashley did see Noah in there, I think it's also unlikely that a mother wouldn't even attempt to pull her child out. It's not impossible, just unlikely. It really does feel like the only thing we know at this point is that something unlikely did happen on March 22, 2015. Maybe it was a lid that somehow swung itself back around, or maybe it was a mother who, at least for a brief moment, decided to protect herself. All the scenarios are unlikely, and that's what created this whole situation. I also think we know that this community has not been comfortable with the question mark still looming over Noah's death. People have plugged in their own answers and usually assumed the worst. Septic is produced by Jacob Demet and me, Robbie Korth. Music comes to us courtesy of Mike Gangloff and Matt Payton. All courtroom audio was obtained from the Pulaski County Circuit Court Clerk's Office after a request to Judge Bradley Finch. This podcast is all about presenting an accurate account of the death of Noah Thomas and his parents' legal saga. All audio has been edited for brevity and clarity. For pictures, original documents, and other extras, visit septicpodcast.com. And feel free to reach out to us at septic at roanoke.com. Thank you so much for listening. And again, this was the sixth of what will ultimately be seven episodes dropping every week right here in this podcast feed. So subscribe wherever you get your shows to guarantee that you'll get the latest installments as they premiere. And once you're subscribed, feel free to explore our archives for other true crime stories as told by the journalists who originally reported them. You can find links to relevant articles from Roanoke.com in the show notes. And finally, if you appreciate what we're doing with this program, we encourage you to invest in local journalism and support the Roanoke Times or whichever newspaper it is that serves your community. For Lee Enterprises, this is Chris Lay. Thanks again for listening.